but what the United States does have that is truly unique and I'm so grateful for is this uh, religious freedom. And so, um, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, this is just a workaround, right? You're just using this as a, as a way to do what you want with psychedelics and that it couldn't be farther from the truth. This is absolutely 100%. This is my profound personal spiritual practice. The mushroom is, it is the most meaningful physical interface for me to access this concept of divinity. Many people seeking healing find that spirituality and mysticism are a fundamental aspect of the psychedelic experience with psilocybin mushrooms. Indigenous peoples across the world have, since time immemorial, considered these mushrooms to be a sacrament that allows for direct communion with the divine aspects of reality. Those traditions are being reinvigorated and reinvented in modern forms in the United States as a result of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which allows for spiritual communities to operate using psilocybin mushrooms and other psychedelics responsibly as a sacrament, and they do this with considerable legal protection. Today's guest on Chronic Pain Rewired can speak to this better than anyone I personally know. He is one of the most highly experienced psilocybin facilitators in the entire world, having legally administered over 3,000 doses of psilocybin. I'm talking, of course, about Eric Osborne. For more than 20 years, Eric has been an outspoken advocate for the healing potential of psilocybin mushrooms. Having facilitated so many thousands of doses of psilocybin, you can bet that he has seen his fair share of people coming to him with chronic pain problems. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the interview, as long as as well as some of my experiences with psilocybin and pain. And, and But this is going to be just part of the conversation. There's a lot of other important topics to unpack here. Eric founded the first public psilocybin retreat center in modern times, Michael Meditations in Jamaica, back around 2013. However, a few years back, he decided to leave Michael Meditations, and he became the co-founder and lead minister of Sanctuary, spelled with a P, like psilocybin, which is a sacred mushroom church based out of Kentucky, and it operates under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Eric has been an invaluable part of my personal journey into the world of psychedelics as my mentor. He's been training me to be an ordained minister and a psilocybin facilitator within Sanctuary. He is the co-host of the podcast Psilocybin Says, along with his wife and fellow co-founder of Sanctuary, Courtney. They also run a psychedelic one-on-one -on -one integration coaching business, More Than Integration. It is my pleasure to share with you this special interview with my friend and my mentor, Eric Osborne. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing today? Good morning, John. I'm doing pretty good, man. Pretty good. Getting some work done and... Feeling a little more productive than yesterday. That's good. What were you up to yesterday? Trying to remember why I exist. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah, one of those days. I, I've definitely had a few of those myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we get into the real topics we wanted to discuss today, I wanted to give the listeners a chance to just kind of connect with you a bit and get an idea of your background. For those of you who don't know Eric, um, well, you've just heard a little bit of what I told you in the uh, intro, but um, I guess we wanted to just first start with, uh, you live in Kentucky and you grew up there, right? What was that like for you? 
Yeah, I grew up uh, in small town Kentucky, a place called Springfield. Um, every state in the union has a Springfield. <laughs> Ours is the smallest. <laughs> um, and uh, it was really, it was very limiting, you know. Uh, there was one street where all of the uh, black people lived. Um, we had maybe one or two gay couples in our town that were constantly subject of ridicule. Uh, churches on every corner, bars on every corner, typical small town Kentucky, a lot of tobacco farming. Um, yeah, yeah. And somehow, I don't know, I, I often ask myself, how did I get here in this mental space, you know, because even as a, a child, um, but back when I was working tobacco, backer, when I was working <laughs> in backer fields, I, uh, I, I would enjoy spending time with the Mexican hired labor more than I would with the, you know, typical white Americans, uh, just always have had a, a, a real interest in cultural diversity and knew somehow that there was a bigger world out there. Um, when I was in high school, I ended up arranging a, a class trip, uh, for a few of us anyway, and some, some teachers to go to Australia. Um, so just, I just knew that seeing the world would broaden my horizons and I would be able to get a bigger picture. And so, um, yeah, that, that, uh, some formative experiences there, both in the conservative and the more kind of open-minded mm -hmm. sense. And so eventually that led you to trying out mushrooms, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so well, roundabout way. Well, I always, this was before I the dreadlocks, I think. I, as, as, as you've probably uh, gathered, you know, I, um, I, I tend to I tend to use the f bomb occasionally. So uh, I hope you don't I mind. I no here. problem with but, that. But you know, ba basically, I, I always like getting fucked up. You know, we grew up on bourbon. We grew up on on beer. And from the time I was 13 years old, we were drinking alcohol. And, uh, you know, in a more refined sense, I like to say I have proclivity for altered states, uh, which I think there is value there. I know that that is actually a part of human design. And it's mm -hmm. been shown that um, um, to some extent, the higher level of intelligence or curiosity that someone has, the more inclined they are towards altered states. And, and I certainly found that to be the case for me. Uh, I was always afraid of psychedelics. I was always afraid of cannabis. My uncles uh, were um, ringleaders in the Cornbread Mafia. Great, the still to this day, it's the largest outdoor uh, cannabis bust in the United States history. Um, and so I was kind of force-fed this all drugs are bad drugs, except for, of course, alcohol and tobacco. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of my younger years just getting getting lit as we like to say and eventually um you know I, eventually i got introduced to to cannabis from a friend of mine in high school saw that it wasn't as horrible as it was made out to be actually fell in love with my first cannabis experience i was just like oh my god this is yes um and then that kind of slowly led to exposure to psilocybin and lsd um, and when I had my first psilocybin experience, it was certainly a recreational experience, but it was, it was like I had come home. It was sincerely, I remember I was 
you know, when the mushrooms hit, I was sitting on the toilet and I was just like, I saw, I saw like the shadow of the toilet paper roll just kind of up the wall. And I was just like, Oh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is my, this is my jam here. And so that whole night ended up, it ended up drastically shifting my painting style. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been engaged in visual arts since, Oh, since, uh, you know, first year of college, I had a, a professor, uh, at my little small town university in Springfield that really opened my eyes to, uh, my, my creativity. And, um, and that, that single night, even though it was purely a recreational experience, I ended up painting some sculptures and melting crayons and just doing all kinds of wacky stuff. But it, it, it influenced my art to this day and my painting style very much reflects that kind of, um, melding of colors and the swirling landscape of the psychedelic Is space. Is that painting behind you one of yours? No, it's actually from that okay. professor though. She, okay, uh, cool. yeah, this is, um, this is a Dogon shaman in the, uh, uh, the tribe, the Dogon tribe in Africa doing the 52 year sun cycle mm-hmm. dance. And it's a huge painting that I used to watch. I used to just lay on her couch and look at it in all, and she told me, you know, one day you can have that painting. And, and sure enough, right as I entered into a certain level of maturity with psilocybin and I started, my work took on this more, um, I still don't use shamanic uh, description, but this kind of energetic work, this work in the spirit world. Um, very shortly after that, she called me up and said, hey, I've got this painting if you're, if you're ready for it. And I just, I was just, just happened to be ready for it. And so it's, it's been a powerful symbol for me, uh, over the years of that kind of through line of, uh, inspiration and creativity through not just, not just psychedelics, but altered states. I mean, this, this dance that they're doing, you know, is entering into an altered state whereby information is accessible. Uh, that is not, not normally so in ordinary consciousness. Mm-hmm. And what, what did your early practice with the mushroom look like? Like what, what was, what was that like for you? It looked like me eating mushrooms and drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest with you here. Uh, you know, but th- th- this is in 1999, mm-hmm. you know, I had no idea. There was no direction. There was no information yeah, was out nothing. there. It was just, these will get you mm-hmm. fucked up. Right. Um, all the drug war had suppressed the previous knowledge that we had gained, uh, back in the forties and fifties and sixties. And so, um, it really just looked like me having a good time, but I always knew even with LSD, whenever I would come out of these experiences, I would think to myself the next day, I would think, I don't know what I, I don't know what I learned, but I learned something. I gained something and I, and I knew that it was inherently different than alcohol with alcohol you don't gain anything. You just, it's all loss, <laughs> you know? Uh, so there, there, the, the seeds of that, um, that spiritual exploration through psychedelics were being sown at that very early age. And, you know, being raised Catholic, uh, there was, there was a certain kind of connection there to this sacramental nature of the mushroom as well, even though it wasn't conscious. Uh, but looking back, I can, I can recall early trips that I had. There was one trip that I had where uh, I was walking through a parking lot at like 3 a.m. after a, a rain and it was just covered with, you know, this sheen of water and leaves that had fallen uh, in the fall. And I was felt like I was walking on water and it was very it was very Christ like, mm-hmm. you know, Christ consciousness. Right. 
Um, and, and that was one of the first times that I can remember kind of making a, a something of a connection to this historical uh, practice or this, this in relationship to mushrooms as a sacrament. Right. And nowadays you're uh, full on into that pretty deeply. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I, I haven't left the recreation mm-hmm. behind though. Um, I have just learned to assimilate. I've learned that I've learned the sacredness of recreation. Whereas before there was just this like, woohoo, mm-hmm. let's just get bent, you know? Um, and now I find that in in this recreation, I, I am indeed recreating myself. You know, I just came back from a, an LSD experience this weekend um, that was, you know, purely recreational, but massively therapeutic, massively insightful, connected me so deeply with nature, but had a great time. So, you know, I don't think that the two need to be necessarily separate mm-hmm. from each other. Uh, there is kind of a, a maturing that can occur. I had one of those last night. <laughs> oh, nice. L- yeah. LSD? Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, yeah, it's something I've been very measuredly trying out recently uh, as uh, out of mm-hmm. – especially from a place of comparing like the physical work in the LSD space to, uh, you know, physical mm-hmm. work in the, in the mushroom space. And, and uh, it t- turns out that pretty much everything, the media and movies and everything tells us about LSD is completely wrong. <laughs> oh God. It, it's, it's one of the most blessed chemicals. It's one of the most beautiful compounds in existence. Um, and it has been so misrepresented mm-hmm. and even, even Tim Leary, I believe Tim Leary has been horribly misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think that he ruined things at all. I think that he was just living 40 years in the future, <laughs> you know, but even this LSD experience that we had, you know, we went for a hike in mm-hmm. the woods, uh, out at the, uh, big national park here. And I was with a, uh, <clears throat> a, uh, transgender person who is the first time I'd really spent any time, significant time with uh, someone who was a trans, trans, transgender. And uh, there was some really wonderful conversation there and some kind of processing of historical trauma for both that individual and myself and others in the group. And, and, and similarly, I was able to, for the first time uh, with LSD, I was able to engage with it uh, like a workspace, mm-hmm. you know, mushrooms, mushrooms have very much become a working space for me. And I, I can, um, engage with it in a, in a very different manner than I have in the past. And I, you, I can use that experience as a way to facilitate, um, healing and energy movement in myself and others and, and found that capability for the first time in the LSD space mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. It's, What's striking to me is how different the uh, the visuals are, and you know, I was telling my girlfriend, LSD is kind of like the uh, happy version of psilocybin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> happy version. Like, like yeah. not that psilocybin yeah. is happy, but uh, it, it could be so much. Like, it could be so much. Like, you know, feel bad. They're not feel bad. Like, you know, here's what you did wrong. Here's all the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it could L- be like LSD. confronting all these it- all these things about your past and. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. LSD is much easier to direct. It's yeah. much easier to say, you know, to, to choose what you want to look at and what you want to engage with. Whereas mushrooms are like, guess what? <laughs> you know, we're dealing with. You're on this ride. Better buckle up. 
<laughs> yep, yep, yep. I know you didn't request this one, but this is what we got on deck. So, but um, how how did you go from going in this recreational space to deciding to open up a retreat in Jamaica for psilocybin? That was an interesting kind of transition. Um, I started a, a gourmet mushroom farm in Indiana, kind of a confluence of events. I ended up renting a 87-acre farm up in just an hour north of uh, the river and moved there while I was teaching middle school. And I had always – I had been growing – I didn't start growing psilocybin. Like I fell in love with mushrooms generally um, very shortly after my first psilocybin experience. Um, but – Gourmet edible medicinal mushrooms came to the forefront. Psilocybin actually kind of went to the background because it was harder to access. There wasn't, it wasn't available. Um, it was highly illegal and I was terrified of being arrested. Um, and so I, I took to reading Paul Stamets and got really in, into growing reishi and shiitake and that kind of stuff, kind of at a little hobby scale. And then I started picking wild mushrooms and, you know, felt like it was just, um, uh, 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 an, an illustration of kind of independence. I could, I could collect my own wild, highly nutritious food. And so that was always really rewarding and exciting. Um, and then the, the way that the psilocybin spores came to me was actually just incredible gift from God. I, I you know, was sitting at, used to go to this bar and hang out with my ex-wife and listen to this band and, um, called serpent wisdom. And I, I hated the bar. It was such a dive bar. I was trying so desperately to divorce my wife, but felt too guilty to do it. And um, anyway, long story short, there was this old guy that used to sit there and listen to the band too. He was a big, long white beard, long white hair. I never knew his name. I just kind of called him Gandalf in my head. And um, we would always talk mushrooms. And finally, one one meeting after like five or six meetings, he was like, "So, if you think you had some." Um, soul seven spores you would know what to do with them i was just like oh, i've been waiting for this moment yes i've been studying i've been studying how to grow a pf tech and all that stuff and so uh he met me wrote <laughs> so funny he was like can you meet me at the corner of jackson and liberty on monday at noon and i was like uh yeah i actually work at the school at the corner of jackson and liberty <laughs> and that that is my lunch break and so he's like okay cool and he didn't know that you know and so he just so i go out there and stand at the corner he rolls up on a bike his hair and beard blowing in the wind you know on a on a bipedal bike not a motorcycle motorbike and he just rolls up hands me a spore print says may the force be with you and drives off <laughs> and uh very uh, I, yeah very shortly after that i divorced my wife I uh, never went back to that dive bar because that's where she hung out. And I uh, never saw the guy until seven or eight years later, I was at my farm in Indiana. I was selling uh, oyster mushroom grow kits mm -hmm. online, you know, locally. And this guy, somebody messages me uh, that has no picture on his Facebook profile, is no, you know, and just like, I can't see who it is. They just say, hey, I love this that you're growing some oyster mushrooms because you sell me a kit. So I say sure i'll drop it off he gives me his address i go to his house and the door the door opens and we are both just dumbfounded that we are each other and it was the guy who had given me the spores and he had forgotten he didn't he didn't know who i was i didn't know he, we were both like oh my god and he was like oh. i was just like dude you changed my life <laughs> and so you know we, we we reconnected we reconnected then and he started coming up and tripping with me 
And that's probably when my, my dosing took on a more serious uh, kind of feel to it. Uh, before that, it was still, I'd have mushroom parties and people come up and we just eat mushrooms and hang out. And, you know, like I said, there's always like some learning that happens, always some growth, but it, it still wasn't, it wasn't intentional beyond let's just eat some mushrooms and, and see what happens, you know. And while that's kind of still what we do, let's just eat mushrooms and see what happens, there's still much more preparation and intention. Uh, and then, of course, like the intentional integration mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh, so, so, yeah, it was really... Mushrooms have just been such a holistic influence in my life, and it's not like there was any one single event. There was just this kind of growing engagement and love between myself and the mushrooms. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's really been a relationship. And what year did you start micro meditations down there? What was that? Oh yeah, well, so um, in 2011, I saw and to, I moved to the farm in '09. Uh, started growing, you know, doing about 100 pounds a week of gourmet mushrooms. Uh, that farm, it wasn't making money, so I ended up growing cubes uh, to sell to make some money. Didn't want to, but my wife at the time had um, family members that were big weed dealers, and she's like, ah, you got to grow some shrooms and sell to my cousin. And I was like, ah, I don't want to. And she's like, oh, we got to. So I did. And, uh, and so I got really, really, I was growing big time. And um, was eating mushrooms a lot, very religiously, starting about 2010 is when I really got going. And I mean, like, you know, once or twice a month. Um, and at like the end of 2011, um, just just feeling the incredible power of this experience and how this is this is so much more than I had ever thought it was. You know, this is so much more powerful. There's, this is so much more transformative. People were starting to talk about ayahuasca and and all that. And I remember feeling like, God, if people just could take mushrooms differently, if they would take bigger doses more intentionally, they would see that this is just as powerful as ayahuasca. And, uh, you know, I had been going to Jamaica every year since 2003, met some Jamaicans and started going in there. I was really involved with the Rasta movement, hence the dreadlocks. Um, And I was in my lab one night working on some cultures, you know, and there was just this overwhelming, like, you're going to do this. Mushrooms are legal in Jamaica and you're going to start these retreats. And I was just like, no, 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 no. That's not for me. I can't, that's too big. I can't do that. And then I would go and take mushrooms by myself. And when I would take mushrooms, they would just be like, you are going to do this. Jamaica, there was this kind of, it, it kept telling me, Jamaica is going to be the lighthouse of psychedelic wellness to the world, and you are going to light the torch. And I was like, no way. This is not. No, no, no. And it just every time I would take mushrooms, it would just pin me to the ground and say this. Um, And then finally, I was like, okay, okay, okay. But why me? Why me? I can't do this. And so I spent like a year in this whole why me phase. And so from 2011 through 2013 is when I kind of went, I was on this um, being called, but also resisting, trying, I, did, I didn't want to answer the call. It just seemed too big. Um, but eventually um, in early 2013, I had decided, okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. And um, in November of 2013, we did our first retreat there of six people, I think. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, really ragtag, just, uh, my friends in Jamaica had some guest houses down there nothing super nice, but on the beach. 
in a real quiet place called Treasure Beach. And I smuggled a bunch of mushrooms down there. And um, yeah, I just started word of mouthing it. You know, I was I was still selling psilocybin pretty large scale. I mean, I was producing about five to 10 dry pounds a month. So 50 to 100 fresh pounds of psilocybin a month at that time. Um, and uh, so I was too afraid to advertise really the retreats, just kind of letting it be a word of mouth thing. And um, then in 2015, we were reported and arrested for psilocybin. And at that point, it was all I had left was the retreats as a possibility for income. I, I, I don't do well living a life without purpose. Um, it's kind of the struggle I was having yesterday is like, I, I, if I, even if I have like three or four days where I'm not doing anything, uh, uh, it's, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a good thing. Um, but I can get into a pretty deep hole of purposelessness. Um, so that was, wow. You talk about some fulfilling work, something that gave me a real sense of purpose at that time, uh, was to be the first psilocybin mushroom retreat in the world. And after we were arrested and my master's degree was basically null and void at that point with, you know, three B felonies, um, I just put all my chips into Myco. And uh, that was right about the time Michael Pollan's book came out in 2018, 2016 is when his New Yorker article came out. And that started to generate some interest. And because we were the only place on the map, uh, then, you know, we'd get quite a few hits through Google. Um and then 2018, when, when his book, How to Change Your Mind, came out, it just set off a cascade. And uh, I was overwhelmed, took on some partners, and started growing pretty quickly there. Um, and then, yeah, that evolved uh, into its, its own thing that uh, we learned a whole lot from, that I, I'm, I'm confident we are applying in a much, much more meaningfully um, and a much higher impact at Sanctuary. What did the retreat experience at Micro Meditations look like? Um, well, it started out um, with four doses. I was doing 10-day retreats with four doses, and that was just too much. Um, and honestly, you know, we, we ended up pulling back to a seven-day retreats with three doses, and I still think that's too much, honestly. There are some people that benefit and even need uh, like three doses in a week. But for the vast majority of people who are brand new to this world, that is just, it's a lot to process mm -hmm. at once. So, you know, people, people, people come down and, um, you know, pick them up at the airport, drive them down the three hours into Treasure Beach, uh, get in there, settle in. The next day we do kind of a, um, intro, get to know each other, take a low dose, see how everybody responded, do an integration the following day, take a break. And then the next day we do another dose kind of repeat, okay. you know, and, uh, but usually we would be raising the dose as the week went on, uh, depending on the individual, you know? Um, and as time went on and I became more confident in my own capability and more confident in the medicine itself, um, I kind of switched that up, you know, after observing people who were, uh, you know, just catatonic depression or anhedonia and um, massive levels of social anxiety, I started to find that it was more effective to give some of those individuals higher doses on the outset and lower the dose as the week went on. And sometimes 
even no third dose. Um, so yeah, they, 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 they also from in the early days we did, we tried to incorporate some sightseeing and stuff. I have always had a deep love for Jamaican culture and I wanted to expose people to the culture. And so we'd go out to different places and, and kind of see some of the area. And while that was nice, it just, it just crammed the week with so much. I mean, you're taking three hits of psilocybin and some people doing like 10, 15 gram doses and then going out to, you know, a restaurant on a bluff and all this kind of stuff. It's just like, chill the fuck out, let the medicine do the work. You know, this isn't a vacation per se. Uh, so, and then as time went on, my partners, they kind of wanted, wanted to, they wanted to get more clinical with it. I'm very much mushrooms in nature kind of guy. Uh, I, I still very much believe that that's where they're most effective. I am, uh, I trip barefoot always, always, always. <laughs> I cannot trip with shoes on anymore. And, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that I encourage people, particularly those who are like city dwelling. And, uh, you know, a lot of our depression, a lot of our anxiety comes from this disconnect from nature. And so mm -hmm. I was always trying to facilitate that experience more than the blindfolds and playlist experience. You can do that anywhere. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. So I can't do the blindfold mm -hmm. and, and, and music personally. I, I just can't do it. Yeah. I, I got, I, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I my, my I first dabble. experiences were like movement was so integral that that's just like where I naturally go. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, it will evolve for you over mm -hmm. time. I mean, it certainly evolved for me and it, it evolves for everybody. If this is a practice, that you incorporate into your lifestyle, then as time goes on, you gain insights. And as you grow, then you start to kind of process mm -hmm. and, you know, work, work with it in different ways. So yeah, they, they kind of wanted to go more the clinical route. They wanted to go with more of the upscale, like $10,000 retreats. When I started these, those retreats, I didn't pull out a calculator. I was just like, ah, you know, a thousand dollars for 10 days. I was doing a 10 day retreats for a thousand dollars that included meals, uh, ground travel, lodging, and all the facilitation. I was losing my ass. Yeah. The company, the, the company was just going underground quick. Um, and, but then, you know, I, I'm, there, there is a middle ground, right? There's a middle ground that you don't have to lose money in order to help people, but you also don't have to become a millionaire mm. or whatever, you know? And so like the $10,000 luxury retreats are just mm -hmm. for me. Don't want it. You know, did some of those at the behest of my partners and it was just too weird, man. Like there was this one place we did that was like all white glove. And I, first of all, like, you know, as a student of post-colonial literature, that was my minor, my major is in English. I have always had a, real uh, problem with the colonial legacy in places like Jamaica. And so to go to a, uh, a beautiful, you know, mansion on the seacoast and then have a, you know, a bunch of black Jamaicans and literally in white gloves serving you seven course meals on silver platters after a mushroom Seems trip like, is the antithesis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was the first word, antithetical. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what comes to yeah. mind. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, when, when that started happening, that's when I knew that I was going to be shifting gears. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that it was going to go, you know, like it has towards sanctuary and this kind of uh, place that we're at now. But I, I knew that uh, we weren't aligned in our um, kind of um, motivations or experiences. Right. Uh, so I know I want to, 
talk a lot about integration here in a bit. So what what did integration before, so we can compare like micro meditation or, or just kind of the retreat experience in general to uh, what what's going on now with things like sanctuary. What what did integration look like at micro meditations for you? Well, you know, and I want to also want to say that I I acknowledge that there is a place for the way that it's going mm-hmm. there. Oh you yeah, know? definitely. Um, there are there are people that want and benefit. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not uh, denouncing Myco no, or anything no, definitely like that. Not. Um, you know, it's just uh, you know, I'm I'm a fucking redneck. Dude. I'm down I'm down <laughs> dirt. You know, that's, that's just my style. <laughs> um, but in integrate integration in those experiences um, is. <sighs> You know, the, the topic of integration is huge in and of itself, right? You can't, it's, it's very difficult to talk about integration in a holistic manner in a short conversation, oh, yeah. much less to actually integrate your experiences mm-hmm. in a very narrow time frame. So, you know, what we were doing and kind of what still is the uh, modus operandi for retreats like that uh, is the day after a mushroom session, then you will have a, you know, two to three hour group integration which generally comprises of reflecting on the experience and what its significance was or is to the individual at that time um and you know there's a lot of value there you can you can pull a lot of great material out you can bring a lot of insights to the table Uh, an effective facilitator of integration particularly in that group context uh can really elucidate behaviors and underlying thought patterns that lead to behaviors and and having that reflection of the folks around you is extremely valuable even within the experience the kind of playing off of each other's experience that organically occurs can offer a lot of valuable insights into your own kind of ways of operating or perceiving the world and so that's kind of how it would be it would be the day after a trip you'd spend a couple of hours and then you do more unofficial or at least i would i always spent time with every individual throughout the week um you know after that formal integration just kind of digging in a little deeper and trying to help them uh, just kind of explore the content of their experience a little more Uh, now what we're doing in sanctuary is i feel like is has it has the potential if it isn't already much more powerful because the integration is not confined to this, you know, small window. There is the ongoing community. There's this ongoing reflecting of other people's experiences that happens now, you know, we're two years in the in the works right now. And so now we've got people that have been with our community for that long who are, you know, continuing to process these mm-hmm. experiences over a much, much longer window. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the most valuable aspects of the psychedelic experience is that they continue, as long as we will continue to engage with the material, those experiences will continue to teach us for the rest of our oh, lives. Definitely. You know, uh, this, uh, this idea that integration is just, you, you go and do a, you know, one type of talk session or something. Not that there's no value in that, but if you just leave it mm-hmm. right there, that is, that's a very unfortunate outcome, I think, for, for many people. You've, you've, you've just, <laughs> you've just lost so much. And, you know, we're, what we're doing now too, that's beyond this, you know, um, 
communal reflection and just talking about our experiences, what, what we're starting to, to do anyway, mm-hmm. with these, um, the music workshops and like your posture workshops and the, the art stuff that Laura is doing. A lot of people that are doing, bringing in different modalities into our community, mm-hmm. that is, that's also integration. Right. And so to be able to for integration to be this holistic, all encompassing, you know, your diet is part of your integration work, your exercise, the ways that you talk to people, how you engage with your family and your community, you know, integrating a psychedelic experience does not mean just like reflecting on what it means. It means actually integrating those lessons into your life. So, you know, yesterday when I was having you know, the, the second half of my day was just this miserable, you know, depression, sense of worthlessness years ago. And, and, and I, when I say years ago, I mean, actually back in Jamaica, I did not have the tools myself to pull myself out of those holes for three or four days sometimes. And today waking up, remembering how I felt and remembering what I've experienced from our community, remembering what I have, you know, shared and told others, I was able to sit myself down, take 20 minutes, meditate, journal for another 20 minutes, and rewrite my fucking story and switch things around in a way that I could never have. I was more suicidal in Jamaica working those retreats than I've ever been in my entire life, ever. Because I was so disconnected. I was helping all these people. People tell me all the time I'm saving their life, blah, blah, blah. And then they're gone. And I'm still like the boss of these employees. And, no, you know, nobody wants to see me be weak, you know, because I'm supposed to be this leader. And so, like, I, I just, when I walked away from, from Myco, I was determined to never put myself into that position again. And with Sanctuary, being able to be a member of the community you know, not just an authority figure is it's, it's saved my life. You know, you and your story and, and so many other people in our community inspire me. I know just as much, if not more than I inspire others, mm-hmm. you know? So the, the beauty of this community integration of us all being on equal ground, there is no expert per se, you know, we're all just helping each other through this life. It really embodies that, that, teaching of Ram Das, you know, we're just walking each other home. Right. I can't stand this. I can't, I can't stand this, this particularly in the psychedelic space, <clears throat> this idea of there being some expert leader who is, you know, paving the way mm-hmm. we're all, bu- we're all bushwhacking this thing together. And anybody that any of these psychedelic leaders, so to speak, who are presenting themselves as, um, without vulnerability who are, you know, spouting off the science and telling you how the things work. And they're not talking about their own tribulations and how they have overcome, not just through psychedelics, but through the work that they Mm -hmm. do personally and through the the community they engage with. Then it's really just like, I don't believe that it's true. I I, I have this, I've had a lot of experience with people in this field. And, you know, I talked to a guy the other day who told me I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trigger. I trigger people in this, in this, uh, in this work. Because I, I do speak very blatantly about this kind of um, psychedelic exceptionalism that seems to be out there. There's a, there's a lot of people out there 
talking about how great psychedelics are and how they had this trip that saved their life and now they want to be a psychedelic leader. And you're this is this like a that's like a two year window of their mm-hmm. life, right? They've pro- they probably did have a great psychedelic experience and they probably have found some relief from their depression right now. But like the show ain't over, folks. <laughs> the show ain't over. You know? And, and and so I just like I really truly I want to be the most authentic human being that I can be and I want to help people understand that psychedelics are they are powerful tools, but they are only effective, truly effective when used in conjunction with community and intentional personal growth all of the time. And they've yeah. got to be approached with respect. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are not tools to be taken lightly. They just, I, I, I think they're just as much potential as there is for good. You could use these things for just as bad too. And Oh yeah. Um, no, I mean the, they're in the shamanic cultures, you know, there are the traditions of the brujos mm-hmm. that were the dark magicians who used, you know, psilocybin and other plant psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just, it's not just one thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, we have a lot to learn as a society. And I, I do feel like this kind of Pollyanna perspective that's being generated around psychedelics has the potential to do some significant harm. Um, but also have faith that it's all going to work out. Yeah, there's, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. If anyone ever tells me they're an expert in psychedelics, I'm going to be like, fucking God come down and uh, bless you with this or what, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've been in the space enough, there's to me, at least no denying that we just know so little. We, we just know so, so little. Dude. Oh, my God. I mean, the last, the last mushroom trip I had with, with Charles, you know, from, from Sanctuary, it, I was just like, I don't know anything about this work. Yeah. I know nothing about I mean, I've taken mushrooms 500 times at least, minimal. And the more I work with psilocybin. Now, there, there was this kind of – there was this point where I thought I knew, you know, like in the early days mm-hmm. – I thought I knew. I thought I knew. But if you keep if you keep at it enough, and particularly if you keep working as a facilitator enough and you keep helping other people with their experiences, you will come to realize that this is this is like a, a, what do you call it? A roulette wheel with an endless number of slots. You just never know what you're going <laughs> to land on. You never know what you're going to get, you know, and you just got to kind of just that that not knowing is the is the most valuable perspective that I take into the work, and whenever I go in to facilitate experiences with other people, or even just in my own my own personal experiences, I go in intentionally saying to myself, "I do not know what's happening. I don't know what's going to happen. I just want to be a I want to be a vessel of healing. I want to help in any way I can. I want to be of service in any way I can. But I have no idea what's going on." And then things happen and you get intuition, you get this kind of intuitive sense of what's happening. And, you know, somebody might be having a really challenging experience or some really weird stuff might be going on. And, you know, in the moment, you can sometimes offer some insight through intuition. But intuition is not cognitive knowing, right? it's... It's that direct experience. And even still, there has to be this sense of, this is my perspective and my perspective is not the only perspective. Yeah. This, 
that came up this this kind of intuition sense. I, I facilitated a a session this past weekend, and it was yeah, I, I was taking this guy through all these different uh, all these different positions and things like that, and at one point he his body just kind of takes over, you know, like completely takes over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, that, that's, that's what I, that's, that's what I was hoping to happen, but you just, you never know. <laughs> and it, it's, Oh man, I'm so curious how this is. Oh, go ahead, so, um, get into, I'm going to do an episode on this later on, but, uh, with, with this person, the visuals, when he got into this one position and I noticed there was a, uh, his feet, one of his feet were like, was like this. And the other foot was, you know, it was kind of like this type of thing going on with the two feet. Uh, their feet were pointing up towards the ceiling in this position. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So I go and put like a block and a strap around him around his ankles to get the feet back into a proper position. And as soon as that happens, half of his, uh, feel he has his eyes closed, but the visuals are all happening over here. It just goes black over here. As soon as I correct this hmm. this position of the foot, and then he starts to realize that he 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 was describing it as like seeing the circuitry that was controlling his feet and his hip and his shoulder, and he's starting to notice this complex relationship between all three of them, mm-hmm. and. Um, he was as he was starting to like repair that cognitively it was you know the field of view was changing from black to white and you know kind of going back and forth but it was like all these fractal patterns the way he was describing it fractal patterns over here and just uh either black or white field of view over here and um Ah. and and then at, at a certain point he just kind of fell over to the side. He was laying down, but he rolled over to the side and just started. I had taken him through maybe a dozen exercises by this point. And then uh, Mm -hmm. at some point it was just his body took over and he started moving in all these weird ways, but he was doing, he said, this telling me to do this, you know, and as as he was doing this, the, the field of view, the visuals start, start to, uh, Oh, wow. (laughs) It was this whole, like, so excited about this work. Um, but I mean, it, what, what is that? The... <laughs> uh, you're, you're really onto something. You're, you're really onto something here, John. And I'm very, very excited about this. Um, you know, years, several years back, um, there was a, about a year where <clears throat> the experiences just kept telling me posture is everything it's all about your it's all about alignment of this circuitry just like you're saying um and so i I think you are really onto something here and i'm very excited about the results that you're going to be able to get with people particularly in that integration afterwards Mm -hmm. if you're working with people Mm -hmm. for you know weeks and months after these experiences that it's very very exciting i think you're doing some groundbreaking stuff yeah it's the results from this one session so far are very promising. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, this, oh, I bet. Uh, completely different issues with sensations in this person's fingertips. So completely different issues or d- difference in how uh, the hips are working. And, and these are, you know, I've been working with this person for two years. 
non-psychedelically. This okay. is the first time we've integrated mm-hmm. the posture work and the psychedelics. And mm-hmm. all these issues that yeah, so there are so many issues that can be solved from just this um just this structural compensation dysfunction relationship. You know, one one system doesn't work, another system works harder. But I think so many of this stuff there's at a certain point when we start to stop seeing progress, I think it's something about the the brain just having these 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 patterns, the the body having these patterns just hard coded in essentially, you know, it it, it it can't envision working the other way. We start talking to his hip. We say, you know, this 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 muscle in your hip is it's it's been protecting you for so long, and, and he started talking to it, telling it, like, thank you for your service, but it's, it's okay to stop, you know? And that's mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. Uh, we started, that was another part of getting his, getting this field of view to, to come through. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. This expert stuff, like who the fuck knows what's going on in this space? Yeah, nobody, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this experience with LSD this weekend where, and this has been a recurring, this has been kind of part of this working space that I've understood with psilocybin. Um, and it's, I don't know how much to go into it. It's, it's interesting, but like when, for instance, when I was talking with this um, trans person, um, they were kind of sharing their story and I was asking some questions and um I guess kind of organically in this space, I tend to go into some kind of Qigong breath work in the second. I can very powerfully feel that magnetic field between my hands. And this point when this happened, like as they were talking, my arms just kind of opened up involuntarily and I could feel my left arm kind of get stronger. Um, there's there's so much I don't, I don't want to go into a bunch of theoretical stuff there's stuff here that i really want to talk with you about we need to set some some time aside <laughs> to do that uh but there there is it's like this you know this quote from Rumi that uh the wound is where light enters the body i know i know that my left side connected to the feminine has had a lot of wounding to it and when I'm working in this space, it is my left side that kind of gets activated, mm-hmm. right? And I can, it almost feels as if it is filling up with energy and bringing on balance. And that in me holding a balance in my energetic system, then into my physical system, that that radiates out into the space around me and allows others to come into balance as well. And it's not just me, right? Uh, my friend Amy was there and she was experiencing a very similar thing. And when we came away from the, the direct, the immediate experience of that uh, kind of offloading of information, um, we both were kind of reflecting the same thing that we felt, we felt this balance shift in our system that brought balance to the whole. And, and you can see it in a group. You can see these things reflect in the individuals. When I, when I was there and all of a sudden I felt my, my system just kind of swell up. 
I, I was just I was just kind of looking around and I saw Amy just she wasn't even looking at me she just like sat up straight and her arms went like that a couple of other people around us that kind of you just saw them kind of shift posture and you can see this kind of mm-hmm. of energy move out particularly it seems to I don't want to say it's not radiating from one person necessarily but there um, when there is this stored I don't even like to think of it in terms of trauma. I just like to think of it as information. When is there, when there is this backlog of information that begins to release either through verbal processing, through emotional processing, through physical processing, you see it in, you see the impact that it has on the people around. And it, it does kind of, it's, 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 it's pulsing out from all of us, from every one of mm-hmm. us. Um, but as, individuals shift and get themselves back into balance then it helps others in the space get their their selves back into balance unconsciously mm-hmm. some really interesting stuff going on here that we have to my knowledge our culture has explored mem- minimally mm-hmm. you know so there's just so much to learn so much to learn yeah we've look it's amazing how we can shut down <clears throat> excuse me we can we can shut knowledge down so easily but it's a lot harder to build it back up. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, just think of how much has been lost mm-hmm. over. Yeah. So true. Uh, even just the, the 50 years since, since, uh, you know, this controlled substances act, it's, it's absolutely amazing how all that work that was done in the fifties and sixties. And, and I mean, it really psychedelic stuff was going on in the twenties and research areas. Mm-hmm. And, Mm-hmm. It's amazing how, by like the mid '80s, that was just all completely erased from the conscious mind of our culture, and just through fear, mm-hmm. just through fear. I mean, you look at you know we brought brought up LSD from the start. LSD is the most still to this day the most stigmatized psychedelic. Mm-hmm. In this group of psychedelic people that I was with, when I brought out LSD, they're like, <gasps> uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, I, I was you I was know? that way it's for like, sure. I mean, I. I what what else can we know that other than what society tells us? I mean, and, until mm-hmm. we go and, and well, try and, ourselves, I I, I, I have yeah, lots like of you said, the, wrong preconceptions about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's because of miseducation. We the, the the truth was pulled away. You know, there was plenty of research. LSD, very high doses of LSD was being given to very young autistic children in the 40s and 50s, and it was reversing their condition you had children who were nonverbal, who were self-mutilating and they were given like thousand two thousand mics of lsd whereas a hundred mics is a yeah. typical dose and they complete reversal of symptoms and all this stuff was documented and much of it was destroyed for any listeners out there interested in uh i don't have the book right it's on my other bookshelf but uh it's called acid dreams uh, and it, it goes back into the research from the 20s, 30s, 40s that you were talking about, LSD, DMT, um, and psilocybin came later. But, yeah, I just reached so we got, a, we got a, a, lot, a lot to make up. I just reached out to a guy uh, a few days ago who who does um, work with LSD and autism. He's autistic himself. Uh, oh, we'll yeah. We'll see if that goes anywhere for an interview. I really hope it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, so you're – you left Michael Meditations when, like, 2020, 2021? Oh, God. Where are we, 2023 now? So it was the tail end of 2020, 
uh, that we that we left Jamaica, and pretty much it was like September of 2020, and by December of 2020, we had decided to start Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attorney that I was working with for the sale of my company um, was he was like, look, Eric, you are by far he 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 had done a lot of uh, ayahuasca churches. Mm-hmm. He was in D.C. at the time. And he was like, Eric, you are by far the most sincere psilocybin practitioner I've ever met. Like, you are the perfect candidate to set up a a church that would be, you know, that could that could go to the Supreme Court if necessary. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Um, but it just, I actually had started a psilocybin church in 2015 up in Indiana with a medical doctor up there. Oh, I didn't know about that. And we had just. Yeah, it was, we called it the Church of Soma. I had I had built a very rudimentary website for it, and we had just we had applied the for paperwork and stuff. I was listed on the board of directors, but we didn't have any protocol set up. We didn't. We just had it was just in name. Um, and when I was arrested in Ju- July first of twenty fifteen, the church was just not it wasn't organized enough to be a, an effective defense mm-hmm. um so while it was very much my spiritual practice at that time um i wasn't set up legally to to use that defense so um in many many ways sanctuary is coming back to my roots this is not a new thing this is actually the old way for me um, and Michael Meditations, in many ways, was kind of a divergence from that path. And I, I really felt like the whole time down there, I felt uncomfortable that I wasn't able to speak to psilocybin for, for off the bat as a spiritual experience. Because the, the vast majority of people that were coming down there had read about Michael Pollan mm-hmm. and Johns Hopkins, and they wanted to relieve their depression, and this was a chemical that was going to fix their depression, mm-hmm. you know, and so I worked with a, a ton of, you know, rational materialists, and, um, you know, I was uh, becoming a reformed <laughs> materialist at that point myself, too, um, because I, even though this was a spiritual experience, I still was very grounded in science, and I still love science and all that, but there's a whole lot more going on that science is not able to explain, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I, it, was, it was a really wonderful opportunity. I worked with a lot of scientists. I worked with a lot of uh, engineers, very high functioning, uh, highly depressed people who after they would have a profound psilocybin experience, uh, then I got this wonderful opportunity of helping them integrate it as a mystical spiritual experience. And I worked with this guy from NASA who was an engineer that helped design the Mars Rover. And he was just like, everything is material. And he had this experience that just like blew all of that out of the water and so, like, to be able to sit with those kinds of people and help them get a little bit acquainted with the metaphysical spiritual world was really was really powerful. Uh, so, from sanctuary standpoint, being able to come back and just from go say this is a mystical spiritual experience, even when you don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I promise people, I've I've helped hundreds and hundreds of people who have had these what seemed like a uh, purely psychological or a purely a trauma processing, you know, somebody spends four hours convulsing on the ground, crying out their trauma, 
You know, that doesn't seem like a mystical experience when you're in the midst of it. But if you can step back and you can kind of, if you can explore the phenomena, the trajectory, the content, the energetics of it, then you can really help people understand that every psychedelic experience is a mystical experience. And that is a great joy and a great beauty to me um, that I'm so thankful for, you know, within the, the framework of sanctuary. So for people who aren't familiar with this type of religious use uh, of, of psychedelic substances, can you give a little background or at least from your perspective on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and how sanctuary fits within that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll go a little bit back prior to the RFRA, uh, start with the uh, uh, 12,000-year-old cave paintings that depict psilocybin mushrooms as part of a spiritual practice. You know, this is, this is the original sacrament. Amanita muscaria mushroom is the longest recorded intoxicant uh, it's been used in ceremony for thousands and thousands of years. It's not a psilocybin mushroom, but it just shows that the psychoactive mushrooms have been a part of human spirituality from prehistory. Uh, and you can you can research yourself and go through and see that in um, Catholic, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, uh, Jewish, uh, sacred art that the mushroom is it's encoded in an, a, an enormous array of uh, religious artwork and iconography. So, you know, the RFRA, I feel like, is just like, um, how do I say it? It's a, it's a little bit like the scientists telling us that psychedelics are good for us, right? Like we know, we don't we don't need science to tell us that psychedelics are good for us. We have twelve thousand years of human historical use. We know they're good for us. We also don't need the the Religious Freedom Restoration Act telling us that this is our constitutional right because the Constitution tells us that it is our right. You know, so uh, it's a, it's a little bit of a um, an irony that we kind of continue to need. Uh, you know, new permission for what is our God-given right from go. Um, but the RFRA is, is valuable in that it just continues to fortify that religious freedom that is, is pretty unique to the United States. You know, I, I, for a long time, even as a child, I thought I was leaving the U.S. I didn't want to live in this place. It's racist. It's backwards, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I went and lived in Jamaica and found out that, you know, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere's got its, got its quirks. <laughs> um, but what the United States does have that is truly unique and I'm so grateful for is this, uh, religious freedom. And so, um, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, this is just a workaround, right? You're just using this as a, as a way to do what you want with psychedelics and that it couldn't be farther from the truth. This is absolutely 100%. This is my profound personal spiritual practice. The mushroom is, it is the most meaningful physical interface for me to access this concept of divinity. We do not know what the divine is. We have all these different ways of expressing it in these different traditions, but 
nobody knows what it is. We all have a very individual and evolving experience with that. And so, uh, you know, the, the kind of mechanics of the RFRA are a little different, and I don't know how much you actually want to go into that. Uh, every uh, Just kind of a top-level overview of it. Uh, in the 90s, Bill Clinton, um, under his administration, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed. Uh, it was initially, it was, it's, it's still, <laughs> it's funny, the RFRA and the uh, UFO disclosure stuff are both get the most bipartisan support of any bill or movements out there. Um, and so there were only two individuals who opposed the RFRA, two congressmen that opposed the RFRA. It was the most bipartisan supported bill ever. Um, and it was originally applied to all 50 states. It then was contested by certain states because, um, well, a lot, a number of, a number of places or people were using the RFRA to, um, give them permission to discriminate. Uh, because, you know, that's your religious right to not serve someone who is in a, um, you know, an ethical conflict of your own personal beliefs. And I, and I personally think that that is an individual has that right. Uh, you don't have I don't to like it. it is right necessarily. <laughs> you don't have to like it. Don't have to like that's it. That's part of that's, freedom. That's, though. That's, <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly like, I mean, I don't like a lot of the things that I hear people say, but you know what? I love free speech for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so as long as your speech or your action is not hurting somebody, um, you know, physically, I guess there's like all kinds of nuance there. Cause you know, your feelings can get hurt all the time and mine do too by all the political spectrum. Um, but you know, that's the whole, whole thing aside. So they originally was applied to all 50 States. So that was deemed unconstitutional. And then um, it was shifted to where individual States would adopt the RFRA for themselves, which is kind of ironic in the first place, because again, the constitution, the first amendment guarantees our religious freedom, not some bill that was added in 1996 or whatever, you know? Um, so there's a little, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of nuance there. The R states with the RFRA are individuals in those states are significantly more protected from being messed with. But if it comes down to it, we already have several precedents set that the constitutional amendment for religious freedom um, will will permit this kind of behavior, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh, so, you know, it's it's so weird, man. Like, you know, Oregon has gone through this whole legalization of psilocybin and they are a non RFRA state. The conservative states are the ones that are most likely to be RFRA, right? Um, mainly because there was this fear of homosexuality becoming this, you know, degenerative in the culture and that we were going to have to make wedding cakes for gay people and you can't force me to and all that stuff. And, you know, <laughs> I think that's dumb as shit. But again, you have that right. Um, and so uh, the, the conservative states have RFRAs. The non-conservative states don't. In Oregon, they have just my belief as we were part of the process of this conversation around um, the attempt to uh, carve out religious freedoms in Oregon and for psilocybin legalization, uh, they just butchered it. Um, psilocybin in Oregon is for profit only. You, It is illegal to gift psilocybin in Oregon, the first state where psilocybin 
is legal. <laughs> it's kind of sense does that make? I, the only thing I can do is laugh because it's, it's just it's, it's so absurd. It, it, it is absurd. Uh, and so churches, uh, psychedelic churches in Oregon have to follow all of the same procedures as a psychedelic for-profit, which means um, because of the regulations set up around it, that it's a minimum of a half million dollars to get set up as a psilocybin treatment center or a psilocybin church. Right. And, and that's just, I believe that's unconstitutional i believe that it is against the the welfare of human beings and it's just it's just setting a horrible precedent and it's also limiting the ability for oregon to effectively bring about the positive change that they say that they want to bring about if this if this is about mental and spiritual health then we should be making this more accessible not less they they can uh, bring all kinds of healing to the ultra wealthy but uh that's about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 30, yeah. Now, Colorado's go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, $3,500 for five grams of, of mushrooms is absurd. It's insane. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely costs less than $10 to grow that. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's just absolutely insane. Uh, so, you know, I feel like what we're doing at sanctuary is really setting a very different standard. Um, you know, I have always, the reason I, those retreats were so, low cost. The one when I started them up is because I've always had a really hard time attaching a monetary value to this work. And even for the, for the years and years and years that I was doing it in uh, Indiana there at my, my farm, you know, I never asked for money. I would, you know, if somebody want to give me some weed or something, people would like, you know, kind of do nice things for me or whatever. And understandably, we all have to, um, Survive. You put food you know, on I'm the not table. saying that people. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Not saying that people that. shouldn't charge. Yeah. But if you're driven, if you if if you are driven by profit in the world of healing, then there is very. I feel like it's very difficult for that work to stay ethical and mm-hmm. true to its does intention. If there is a profit motive behind it, look at what we see in the Western medical world. And if psychedelics go the same route as, you know, standard West Western medicine, then again, it's going to be for those who can afford it. It's going to be for, you know, I don't want to say elite necessarily, um, but it's not going to be for the people. Mm -hmm. And if there is any medicine that is for the people, it's psilocybin. It'll, it's ubiquitous. Psilocybin grows everywhere. <laughs> every almost every state in the United States has wild psilocybin. There's 200 plus species of wild psilocybin mushrooms that grow in almost every environment except mm-hmm. like Antarctica or some frozen tundra, you know. And so the, this is truly, I truly believe that this is a gift from our Creator for everybody. There's probably like 10% legitimately, like 10% of the population that should never touch psilocybin because of schizophrenia or other pre-existing mental health conditions. But even those individuals with the right support would become healers in their own right. You know, what, what the, the way that we have taken the mental health of an individual and pathologized it in every sense is more detrimental to the individual than the actual mental health condition itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once we pathologize this and tell people, "Oh, you are schizophrenic," we, we it, 
I've, I've known firsthand, even with physical diagnosis, you know, things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, it, it doesn't have to be just, just these, these mental disorders. Once you pathologize these, these syndromes that med science and medicine can't explain, and once it becomes ingrained as that person, part of that person's identity, it is just, the, the problems can often tend to multiply and stack on top of one another. And yeah, now now their ego, their sense of self is devalued because there's they've got they're broken. There's something that's is wrong with them, and no one has any no one has anything to fix it. Yeah. At least, no, at least mean, in the legitimate yeah. in the legitimate quote unquote legitimate uh, <laughs> uh, avenues of healing, at least in, in our in our society. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't even know that like fixing it mm -hmm. is the way to approach it right like working with mm -hmm. it finding a way to work with your condition i mean i i would uh, th this kind of became apparent to me about four years ago three or four years ago that um you know i i had been to psychotherapist a couple of times and they immediately wanted to put me on medication like immediately the, uh, despite me sharing like the life challenges that I was experiencing that clearly were exacerbating these symptoms. They were like, Oh, here's Zoloft. Take this, you know? And I, I would, I tried it one time. I did Zoloft for like two weeks. I was like, yeah, fuck that. I'll just smoke weed. I will self-medicate <laughs> before I just com completely lose touch with reality or disassociate, you know, but I, w I would certainly be diagnosed as borderline. Mm -hmm. Certainly I have been, I have, I have all nine traits of, of BPD. Uh, it's been, you know, it's, it's had its struggles, but it's also been an incredible gift. And the more, when I kind of went through that stage where I realized, oh, I have a diagnosable condition for about a year there, when I continued to research the condition and when I started to continue to kind of um, look at the pathology of it, I was as hopeless as I had ever been mm -hmm. because this was, oh, all of a sudden now I'm not just sad or now I'm not just experiencing extreme mood shifts. Now I am this thing and I will always be this mm. thing and I will be fucked forever because of it, you know? And then when I kind of took a step back and realized what I had always said to other people and working with them is that you are not your diagnosis. And I started to be able to take, be able to observe the traits, right. And at times apply them when it was helpful. I mean, this, my, my ability to, um, to pick up on other people's emotions and to kind of process that with them is a very powerful tool that I'm so grateful to be able to have. And by an awareness of it, rather than a, you know, pathologizing of it, I'm able to kind of pick it up and put it down a little more easily. Like, oh, okay, now is the time. And then after I go through an extreme state, you know, then I can take time to meditate, center myself, come back to where I am rather than just being kind of all over the place or thinking like, this is just who I am and I'm always going to be this way. So anyway, yeah, yeah it's a, you've got it's a great a, episode kind of, of, uh, of psilocybin says about that, that I've listened to. So if uh, any listeners are interested in that, look up psilocybin says, and I can't remember the name of it, but I'm sure there's something in the title. That yeah. Can find it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll try to find it and link it in the episode description, actually. How about that? That's cool. Yeah, no, I, I, it's out there. I got to, there, there is a, a YouTube video that I did under Sanctuary that is called, um, it says uh, Mental Illness. It's titled Mental Illness or Psychedelic Superpower. 
Um, because yeah. one of the big takeaways that I've, one of the big takeaways that I've gotten over the years in working with people is that just that those who are diagnosed with these extreme mental illnesses are some of the most powerful healers out there. Mm -hmm. It's just learning how to work with your condition, not be subject to it. Mm -hmm. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, actually, no, one other, one other thing first. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the church and, and psilocybin. Like, I want to give people an idea of a lot of people might have this misconception about psychedelic churches that it's just going and eating mushrooms all the time. And <laughs> that's what, that's what everyone's doing. Right. Uh, what percentage of your work mm -hmm. in, in sanctuary actually involves the consumption of mushrooms? Yeah, it's a great question. Very little, uh, very little actually. Um, we're trying to move more and more away from this kind of, retreat model necessarily we definitely want to have uh communal experiences mm -hmm. um but it's much more the medicine work is much more about empowering individuals to to work with it on their own and then bring those experiences back into community and process them uh, we do a lot as you know we do a whole lot of community building yeah um, we're definitely we do a, a lot of stuff virtually do a lot of virtual community online we do a lot of in-person community here locally we're working like individuals like yourself are trying to bring in together community in their own region, you know? So, um, that is just absolutely 75% of psychedelic healing comes from engaging in community, being of service to community. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, that is the most that we do. I'd say if, if, if 25% of what we do is actually, um, engaging with, the sacrament as a community, it's probably more like 10% really. I, I'd honestly be uh, surprised if it's old. even that much. <laughs> if it's even, if it's even that, yeah. I mean, and, and that, that like, it speaks to two things. It speaks to the power of these, these experiences to bring people together outside of the experience. And it speaks mm -hmm. to the power of community itself. I mean, that's such an enormous, um, have, um, aspect of our, collective mental illness is this isolation that we have done. Mm -hmm. We have created a culture of individual and then we exacerbated that with, you know, the COVID stuff. And so we, we have got to be coming back together as community. We are tribal, we are communal in nature and we are not going to be healthy individuals until we have healthy communities. Mm -hmm. So that is absolutely the forefront of what we're, what we're doing at sanctuary. And that's the big thing that I learned in Jamaica. You know, I would work with people. They come on retreats They have an amazing, powerful week. They'd have all these insights. They would say that they're healed. And then they go back to, into their home community and they'd have nobody that they could talk to, nobody that they could relate to. They couldn't continue processing the experience. They're continually exposed to all the same triggers and all the same stuff. And within a month to three months, they're back to square one. And so then what? You gonna pay another six thousand dollars to go to a retreat in Jamaica every three months? No, mm -hmm. that's no. not psilocybin. <laughs> it's not tenable. Psilocybin is a is an, a part of a healthy lifestyle. It's not just a one and done, and that's another disservice that the media and uh, you know some of the reporting is doing here is talking about how oh one psychedelic experience and you're a new person for a little while, mm -hmm. but it, it always comes back. You know, so that's um. That was the biggest takeaway from our work in Jamaica is that this work has to be done 
effectively in community. Yeah, we we are the medicine. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the psychedelic psilocybin's a great tool. We are the medicine. We we've got to do the work mm-hmm. to be the medicine. That's what it comes down Absolutely. to. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, I see that in you. I see you continuing to show up for community, creating community, and you know, it's people like you that are the fuel that keep me going because you know despite what i guess it's it's very easy even in the retreat space people are like oh y'all are balling you're making all kinds of money down there and it's like fuck you have no idea the overhead you have mm-hmm. no idea how much it, it costs there is in this and so it's like it's fair in a sense that these retreats cost five and seven thousand dollars because they're expensive as hell to run mm-hmm. you know and the church the community I think there's a lot that goes into that. And so, you know, it's just um, if if you're not in this work for the sheer for the love of it, for the love of community, then you're not going to last, mm-hmm. period. So do people need to be a do people need to live in Kentucky to uh, to be a member of Sanctuary? Obviously not. No. Or you are out. <laughs> you're, New, you're New Mexico. You're New Mexico. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm out here in New Mexico. You're New Mexico. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, how, yeah. Does, how does that no, work No, that's for one people? of the things that. Well, you know, like I said, we do a lot of virtual stuff, and we have people that do come to Kentucky for events, and we have people that are doing other things in, in different regions. Really excited to see that grow more. Um, and and one of the, you know, one of the uh, kind of motivators in creating this as a nationwide organization is kind of waving that flag for others to see, you know, because there are millions of people out there who are looking for communities like this one. And there are lots, there's like 200 psychedelic churches in the United States Mm -hmm. right now, but the vast majority of them are still operating kind of, you know, below the, below the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, Because there's still a lot of fear. Um, I am exceedingly confident because of our legal structure, because of the sincerity of our community, because the majority of our practice is not centered around psychedelics, that if, if we ever had to go to a high court to prove our legitimacy as an organization, that we will have no problem with that. I have no no issue with that. So we've got members. We had like 300-something members in, uh, I think, 40-plus states at this point. Um you know, and people connecting and going and meeting each other around different mm-hmm. states and whatnot. It's really exciting. But I'm I'm also very, very excited about as as we get members in different pockets about those locations starting to form their own physical communities where people can get together and support each other. Te- we've got a lot of members in Texas, a lot of members in Florida. We've got quite a few members in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Um quite a few on the eastern, northeastern U.S., Maine and New York and, and whatnot. Um, and it's just been amazing to see how those virtual communities show up and support each other. Um, and then, yeah, as it grows and we have more physical community getting together in different locations, that's just going to be amazing. And by and large, what does this kind of legal protection for members look like? Yeah, well, so how did this, this is a this is a big question. I mean, we could spend an entire episode on this. Um, so, you know, just to kind of go back to the RFRA and the constitutional right. The litmus test for religious freedom is in um, 
sincerity of use, and um, public safety. So, for instance, here in Kentucky, we had uh, the rattlesnake churches. You ever hear of the rattlesnake oh, churches? Yeah. Oh, look, mm-hmm. I got a little rattlesnake. Yeah, I saw one on uh, Justified when I watched that show. <laughs> okay, so so rattlesnake churches are not protected by constitution because they're it's a threat to your life to hold a rattlesnake mm-hmm. period okay it is it is detrimental to public safety you may be as sincere as shit and and they apparently are right uh, but it's still federally and state illegal because there is such a high risk of public harm we have an overwhelming abundance of evidence that shows the safety of psilocybin the efficacy of psilocybin and the mystical nature of psilocybin. So from a public health standpoint, there's, you know, signed, sealed and delivered. We're, we're good there. Uh, from a sincerity standpoint, those of us who have built sanctuary, this is our lives. Like Courtney and myself, my wife, Courtney, uh, Amy and Athena, who all have been foundational to the, the building of sanctuary. We psilocybin has been formative to our spiritual growth members that come in. Um, the vast majority of the people that come into this, come into our community are very obviously sincere. Um, and those who are coming in exploring primarily mental health benefits very quickly understand that this is a spiritually founded community um and so far the vast majority of those people have found that to be a helpful perspective the protection of belonging to the church is significant we have created multiple programs that will buttress that protection as individuals get more involved in the church so you know the minister programs mm-hmm. that you've been through and and this is all this is all has precedent in uh, state level Supreme courts, the more vested you are in your training and your ongoing engagement with the community, that is just more and more support and evidence for your sincerity. And so we, uh, some of our, most of our, our private courses that are for members only, we record the roster and we record the calls, not just for the members to have as, uh, you know, to go back to and listen to later on if they want to, but also as evidence in court if ever needed. So if anybody ever comes and says, you know, oh, John's just trying to have a wellness organization, you know, that's disguised as a psilocybin practice, we can go back and we can show hundreds of calls that you've been on, right? We can mm-hmm. show your registration in all of these programs that clearly show your sincerity, right? So I know that some people have a little bit of a, um, resistance to that because they think, oh, well, then now my name is on some gov- some list for the government to find. But that's actually a good thing right. when it is in the context of an organization that's structured as ours. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we have we spent about six months uh, with our attorneys uh, who, you know, were very experienced in psychedelic law. We spent a lot of money with these attorneys, our own money before sanctuary was ever a thing, uh, just setting this thing up. With extensive bylaws, an extensive code of ethics, we have an extensive uh, letter to the DEA on our website. You know, there's this whole conversation about the DEA uh, supposing to give you permission to be a psychedelic church, right? Mm-hmm. 
again, that's a whole big top. We can go on for hours and hours about that itself. But the bottom line is the DEA is not a uh, religious certification organization, right? The burden of proof is on the government to show that we are insincere and good fucking luck with that. Right. Mm-hmm. So our attorney. So, you know, some some psychedelic churches will apply to the DEA for this uh, controlled controlled substances uh, permit. And when they do that, but as soon as you file that paperwork, then you have told the DEA says you have to cease all work with sacrament until we give you approval. Mm-hmm. And they never give approval. They mm-hmm. have never given approval. Only two only two churches have been given Supreme Court approval to bypass the Controlled Substances Act because they were sued by the government and then they turned around and proved their sincerity to the government, right? So we the the burden of proof is on the government again, like I said. And so our attorney was like, and I just love that he did this. Evan Evan Park, he's moved on to Saudi Arabia on a private firm out there now, but uh Man, he really did a, did us a solid, and he wrote a beautiful, extensive letter that's posted on our website. Anybody can see it. Go to the legal notice at the very bottom of our uh, sanctuary.org page, and you will see this beautiful letter that uh, Evan wrote uh, on behalf of Sanctuary that cites many court cases um, and basically says, Good luck trying to prove that we're not sincere. And mm-hmm. I, I mean that that and that the proof is in the pudding because mm-hmm. we live this on a daily. This has been like I said, I started a, I tried to start a psilocybin church in 2000 and whatever it was, 14 or 15, 15, you know. Um, so I am very grateful that the 25 years of sincere devotion that I've had to this sacrament can be leveraged for others to come under this umbrella of sanctuary. And that's, that's entirely what my intention has been is to provide a safe place for sincere explorers to come and have a community where they can be supported and where they can be support because that's where the real healing happens. When you are of service to others, that's when you start to heal. couldn't have said it better myself <laughs> that, i think that that is a inherent for for many people at least i think that's an inherent message we get from from the psilocybin experience in particular absolutely um mm-hmm. that it, my life didn't start to improve until i started doing that, <laughs> that was, <and> absolutely <laughs> yeah. so it's so true i mean even even myself you know that was like as i was sitting here um, you know, working through this kind of um, depression that took over yesterday or that I found myself in yesterday, you know, that's what, as I sat there, I knew that the thing that I had to do to dig myself out of this hole was just to find something that I could do that would help another person. We, it's okay that we get value out of being of service. It's okay Mm -hmm. that we get, that we get meaning and purpose through being of service. And it doesn't have to be huge, you know, like, you know, what got me out of it or got me the service that I was providing is that there's a fucking hole in my wall. Like I'm doing some remodeling and a a bat came in from the attic last night and scared the hell out of my son. And 
I was like feeling like I want my son to feel safe and secure. So I'm going to go do like, I just make this little step, cut some drywall. Oh, I don't feel like it. And then, you know, you get the ball rolling. You're like, oh, okay. I, I, I'm doing something that is going to help someone feel safe. It's going to help someone feel comfortable in their own home. So yeah, there's just, there's just so much power in that, man. And you know, like, I just fucking love you, John. I just, I love you what too, I have man. seen you, how I've seen you showing up for people, but they're like, that's it. Like I see, I've seen you showing up for people. I see you're putting yourself out there just to be of service to people, you know? And so that's how we're going to build the new world. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I know we're coming up probably on time here pretty quick. I want to, are there any case, like, I don't know, I guess case studies or instances from all your time in, uh, in, in Jamaica, uh, that stick out regarding someone who was suffering from like severe chronic pain that, that experienced a, a major shift. Maybe not even necessarily the pain itself, oh, yeah. but how they view the pain. I mean, that that's, that's, that's oh, just yeah. as big. Oh, know? yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's hard. It'd be hard for me to nail down any one in particular um, because with the chronic pain, I think like you're saying is that it's not so much that you, that the pain itself goes away, but your relationship to the pain, Mm -hmm. you know, I, myself, I do, I have dealt with a lot of chronic pain, shoulder pain. Um, and, um, I've turned, I've, I've turned to look at it more from an energetic, um, balance perspective rather than kind of how do I alleviate this, 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 experience is how do I learn from this experience? How does experience, how does this experience inform my decisions and my behavior, you know, on a, on a more daily incremental basis? Um, I have, I have seen so many insane shifts in perspective that could just be termed as nothing short of a miracle, honestly. Um, but all, I think all of all of that ultimately goes back to a shift in perspective on whatever the symptom is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then there's also the the motivation that comes with that shift in perspective to get to the gym, to get to you know whatever it is. Myself, uh, I found that a lot of my chronic pain on the left. Uh, there were some really powerful messages that came through human beings in the mushroom space and my own experience that related to water in particular. And uh, I, I started swimming again. Like I used to swim a lot when I was a kid. Um, and then in like the second, third grade, my eyesight got real bad, put me in glasses and I wouldn't swim because I couldn't see. And once I kind of woke up to this realization that, that the element of water was missing from my life. And then I was not that I needed to get back into swimming. And I have done that. Uh, it's helped significantly reduce my shoulder pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there were many messages that came in around strength building. Um, you know, Julie, a member of sanctuary, her mm-hmm. and her husband, uh, came down to Maiko and, <clears throat> uh, sorry, 
that beautiful dog he's walking up on me um <laughs> and, and um they uh her husband in particular his experience taught me so much about um that my need for strength building and so i started going to the gym and doing more weightlifting and whatnot um, about a six months to a year after working with him and that drastically changed my experience um and my symptoms so you know yeah i've seen i've seen a lot of uh a lot of alleviation of pain through behavior change brought on by the experience and through perspective change brought on yeah that, the experience that, that's where that's where my improvement was i mean my, my experience reduced my pain to a certain extent but it was what i learned in it and what i applied every day for mm -hmm. the next six months that finally mm -hmm. got me out of pain that that's that. the that's the thing with the with the psychedelics mm -hmm. is that you know they'll they'll tell you all they'll give you the goods but then you got to implement it mm -hmm. if you don't apply it you know and that's what I've seen you do beautifully and that's why you are such a success story. Um, so uh, let's I guess probably start time to start wrapping up here. Um, Really quickly, for people who maybe aren't ready for the uh, for the church route, <laughs> is is more than integration an option you, for that? You mean the cult? <laughs> the, the, the cult? cult the cult? <laughs> 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 yeah, more than uh, more than integration or MTI is a um, it's an offshoot of the church. It is a a, a mission of the church, an mm -hmm. outreach of the church. Um, we definitely understand that not everybody uh, is ready to get involved in a community like this. I am the product of an enormous amount of religious trauma and I understand mm -hmm. that many, many people are. So I completely respect that and wouldn't want to, wouldn't want anybody, you know, before they're ready trying to come into this at all. I am the most non evangelical, um, minister you'll ever meet. <laughs> um, but MTI, we are opening up more and more to the public. Um, Bill and his music, uh, integration work. Bill Prosman is an amazing musician, and uh, he's not a music. He's not a therapist, uh, uh, certified therapist, but he has worked in music therapy for a very long time. With Bill's amazing. Veterans. Yeah. Bill's Bill is a fucking gem. <laughs> he really, I love that guy so much. Um, and he's doing some stuff with us that is open to the public. Uh, we are starting an LGBTQ community that is going to be open to the public. Courtney's going to be doing a women's circle and a women's uh, microdosing that's going to be open to the public. Uh, the, the, the microdosing or what we call the subtle sacrament uh, itself will not be open to the public because as a church, we do actually ship um, sacrament. We gift sacrament. It's always at no cost uh, to our members. There is a cost for the coaching and the enrollment in the program, but it's, it's, it's fucking it's, way lower. It's, oh my God. It's trivial compared to what's on the open market. Yeah, absolutely trivial. I know. Sometimes, some, sometimes people say like, Oh, I can't believe you're like, this is a $300 course or whatever. And I'm like, Oh my God, have you checked yeah. out what's happening out there? Yeah. Like $800 for no mushrooms, you know? <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> that's, it's a, it's a thing. Um, and let's see what else is opening up to but anyway mti more than integration uh, because our this concept being that integration is more than just talk therapy um is is becoming this publicly accessible um interface where there are a variety of modalities i don't know that we've talked about your your um your 
work in MTI being open to the public yet, but I'm sure I would suspect that you are very open to that. Yeah. We, we had one very brief conversation a couple months back. We need to revisit that. <laughs> That's we've, yeah, we, we have just in the last, in the last week, mm -hmm. uh, it's come back on the table and we are bringing all this kind of, uh, public access into the format. So yeah, it's definitely something that we need to talk about. Um, for people who are interested in can at least uh, seeing what sanctuary is all about, where should they go? Uh, if you want to be a member of our cult, <laughs> then no, no. Um, so sanctuary.org is the website. Um, we have every Sunday, we have a service from 10 to noon on zoom. The link for that is on the homepage that's open to the public. It's 30 minutes of meditation, journaling, reading from a few inspirational texts. And then we have a 90 minute uh, conversation that is more like the traditional talk integration. But we usually use those inspirational texts as a kind of a, a jumping off point for those mm -hmm. conversations. And as, as you know, those are some incredibly powerful conversations. I am continually amazed at what I hear from folks and how inspired I feel after those conversations. We're running 70 people or so on those calls right now, um, expecting that to grow pretty soon, uh, or it's just continuing to grow. Um, other ways to just kind of engage with Sanctuary, uh, uh, as, as John mentioned, my wife and I, Courtney, we have a podcast called Civil 7 Says, where we talk something, some about the church, but um, really it's just, it's, a psychedelic lifestyle podcast mm -hmm. um, kind of want people to get familiar with us uh, since we are currently, I guess the most public figures within the church. Um, and we are, you know, directing a lot of the programs and whatnot. Um, then, you know, we feel like it's really important for people to get to know us to an extent before deciding to engage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's, and, there's no lack of content for people who want to get to know you guys there. There's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try, we try a YouTube channel. We do, mm -hmm. we try to just be, you know, I don't know. Courtney and I both have the, uh, the, uh, the curse of overproductivity. Her parents are attorneys and my, my parents were, uh, ran a construction business. So we just like grew, both grew up working all the time, which is a balance that we're seeking to find a little better. Um, Sanctuary is definitely <laughs> an immersive experience for us. It's like all the time, um, which is fine. You know, we have some, some calls tonight. I'm looking forward to, I'll be on one of them. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot, uh, <laughs> oh, great. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of ways to engage with us, um, to check it, check us out. Um, Instagram is out there and all that stuff, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but really a, the best way to get the flavor of the community first off the bat, are these Sunday services. And then mm -hmm. if you feel like it's something that you want to be, you know, more engaged with, and you can still do that as a non-member as long as you want to. And then if you feel like, you know, this is something that you want to contribute to, that you want to be a, an active engaged part in, then we've all got all kinds of different trainings and workshops and all kinds of stuff uh, for people to get engaged in. We've, we've, we're having people that are actually moving to Louisville from, from California and other places mm -hmm. to come be a part of building this from the ground up. And we're also, like I said, we're looking for, serious people who are committed to service to help bring sanctuary, you know, in, in person to other places around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll give my little bit on, on the, the, I was hooked after the very first Sunday service I went to. Uh, that was, 
and this is I'm a person who absolutely hated church as a kid. And as soon as my parents stopped making me go, and when we moved to Albuquerque and my mom couldn't find a church she liked, I was like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, God, for no more church. <laughs> And and now, I mean, even if I'm on vacation, it's I I, I make time for it. You know, I uh, it doesn't doesn't matter if I'm out of town. If unless I th- there's been one service I've missed, and it's because I was just so sick, I I I, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> and that that's the it, it's it's remarkable how how much value I find in something that I would have never th- in my life thought. That I would find value in, <laughs> and, and and we hear that all the time. We hear that all the time. But I mean, you know, there's not a lot of places where you can go and have a really vulnerable, intentional mm-hmm. conversation that is just exploring possibilities and new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really all. I, I I think if there's anything that I do well, it is knowing that I don't know. You know, and that's kind of the, that's what I try to bring into those. When I lead those calls, that's what I always try to bring into it. I don't have a fucking clue what's going on. We're all exploring this together. Mm -hmm. There are these different interesting concepts that we can, you know, take some from, take pieces from and leave pieces behind. And, and yeah, it's just a process of evolution. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I think that's all the questions I've got for you. Do you have anything, anything else you'd like to add before we go? Ah, uh, no, not not that I could think of. Um, you know, that's um, I think it's very thorough, and I've very much enjoyed this conversation. I if anybody too. wants to look look check me out on my personal social media, um, I am Reverend Spore Spreader on Instagram, <laughs> and um, and uh, Twitter. I've start, recently started getting involved in the Twitter space just a little bit, um, but I try not to be too social media. I got a pretty big uh, LinkedIn following, I yeah, guess, or whatever. I'm also several thousand people following you on LinkedIn. I've seen. Yeah, it's almost four thousand. I saw this morning, mm-hmm. so which is nice. It's cool to, uh, you know, I don't know um, the whole social media and all that. You know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's like what what value is there? But I've actually had a number of people, particular particularly on LinkedIn, who have reached out and said how much they appreciate of what I share because I do try to be really authentic, even in social media, mm-hmm. you know, life is fucking hard and everybody knows it. And I think most of us are getting tired of this glam shot shit show. That's like, mm-hmm. Oh, look at, you know, it's like, it's, it's fake. Mm-hmm. It's fake. And so I just, I just really try to present the most authentic. I saw this thing today that's saying in terms of when they've done, um, magnetic resonance imaging of, of, of brain scans, that the um, that what creates the highest kind of electromagnetic field is not love necessarily, it's authenticity. So whenever you are being true to yourself, whatever you're feeling and you're just being so real, like that is that is our power. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a lot of what psychedelics teach us. Embrace your authenticity, be, yourself that whatever you call the creator whatever you call the the impetus whatever is behind the scenes here it's our resistance to allowing that light to shine is where the majority if not all of our um, 
problems, sickness, challenges come from. So the more we just can embrace our true self, then the more beautiful world we help to create. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, John.